Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, January 18th, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we are going to have the first part of our top movie moments of 2021 podcast, the annual list that we do celebrating the best moments in the world of movies. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film Senior News Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And editors, Huai Chen Bui. Hey, everyone. Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And chief film critic, Chris Mangelista. Oh, hello. All right, Jacob, I'm handing the reins over to you. Let's get this thing moving. Yeah, if you've listened to this show for, for years, you know that every January we do our top 50 moments of the year as a written article on Slash Film. But in order to determine those top 50 moments, we have it out. We have our battle royale here on the show where we put together a massive list. Every moment we want to have in contention, even ones that we know won't make it, we just want to talk about. So we can you know, hash it out and like really figure out what the top 50 moments of 2021 were. And looking at our list right now, guys, we have 104 moments on this <laughs> list. So sorry, sorry, 154 moments. So we need to cut 104 moments from our list. <laughs> so what I want to do is I think I want to do is like we have in years past. We will go around the horn. Uh, and each time somebody will pick one to eliminate from the list, meaning to take it out of contention, one that they either think strongly should not be on the list or one that they put on the list but said, yeah, it's not going to make it. I just want to kill it, but we give it, you know, some time of day. And then nominate one 
to you know go right on the list. And if everybody agrees, we lock it in. If there's some dissension, we put it into in discussion. We can return to it later. Um, and you know we'll play from from there. Uh, the idea being that we want to chop down this list as rapidly as possible so we can get to the good stuff. Um, yeah. Um, beyond that, like I said, if you haven't heard this before. Our 50 moments are very, very loose. It could be either a, like a single moment, a single line of dialogue, a shot. It could be an entire action sequence or, or like a, a longer section of the film. How we define moments uh, is very, very flexible. It's just these are the things that lingered with us from the movie. So you may even see some great moments from bad movies <laughs> on this list. Uh, so what we'll do is our, our order will be uh, HT, Chris, Brad, Ben, and then me. And we'll go through that, go through that cycle until we are done. Uh, so, HT, how about you pick one title you want to remove from this list, whether it be one that you nominate yourself, just you want to say goodbye to it, or one that you think is bad, and then one that you think should be in the top 50 no matter what. Okay. One that I'm going to eliminate is one that I added myself, um, but I know is not going to get on this list because I'm the only one who has seen this film, and that's Belle Saving Kay. So this is sort of the climax of the film in which um, Suzu, the main Oh, it should character- be said, spoilers. Spoilers for all 2021 yes. movies. If it came out in 2021, there will be spoilers. So just be careful. There, there will this. be spoilers. I'm about to go into some spoilers. I'm going to try to say it, describe it without with as least spoilers as I can because I do want all of you guys to watch this movie at some point and be sort of pleasantly surprised by it. But I'm going to be talking about it a little bit and talk about why it's special and then uh, eliminate it. But um, this is the moment, the climax of the film, where uh, Sousa, the protagonist, is attempting to save Kay, the uh, person who she realizes is the user behind um, the dragon avatar, the beast in this case, which is the... Um, because Belle is sort of inspired by uh, Beauty and the Beast but a sort of digital take on this. Uh, so what I really like about this moment is that it's such a an optimistic view of our digital world, and it's one that you rarely see on the screen. I feel like there's so many either cynical and ugly or just kind of all about um, the the horrors of of the digital world. And Mamoru Hosoda, who directs this film, uh, takes such a, a hopeful look at it and it's kind of this rallying together of people through the internet through this globalized culture um, and this globalized world uh, the world of you which is this virtual reality which uh, uh, takes place which is the place in um, Bell um, and seeing that all come together and and um, in saving this boy from his situation and um, the different types of love that this movie shows which i found really refreshing because in the case of beauty and the beast you expect a very romantic story but it's almost a a kind of love that's like unconditional and pure in a way not just pity but something a little bit a shade different than that and it all comes to it all culminates in this this big sequence it's very action-packed but it's still uh, extremely hopeful and warm and empathetic so i'm going to be cutting uh eliminating bell saving K from this list because uh, I'm the only one who has seen it, but uh, I recommend that you guys all go see Bell, which is now in theaters uh, everywhere in this country, I think. <laughs> As for ones that I want to uh, nominate, I would like to nominate. Um, let's see, one that I really, really want. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, the Green Knights. We have several moments nominated from the Green Knight, but one that I think should definitely end up on the list is the 
the lady's monologue in The Green Knight, that one delivered by Alicia Vikander, in which she talks about how uh, the meaning of green, rather. And I wish I had the monologue pulled up in front of me before I chose this because it's a great monologue. And I don't want to paraphrase it and make it sound much lamer than it is. But she talks about how green is is going to... Uh, was it like red is is ardor after it's all died? Okay, sorry. This is terrible. We don't <laughs> know, HT. You have to tell us. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I will say this much. I think this list cannot have just one Green Knight moment. It's all I'll say is HT goes back into this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great monologue. Um, and I, what I really love is how it, it represents what I think the Green Knight uh, is about, which is about um, the inevitability of death and of nature, uh, kind of that relentlessness of nature and kind of overcoming and taking over everything. Um, and I think that Alicia Vikander delivers this monologue with such a hypnotic grace that uh, it just stood out to me as one of the many moments that um, made The Green Knight one of the best movies of the year. And uh, at this, this moment, it just made my jaw drop when I watched it. So that's the ladies monologue, which I <laughs> paraphrase terribly. <laughs> Can I say one thing about this? Uh, I think this is a great moment, but we have, we have five green night moments on this list and I do not all get on the list, but I think we'll probably get two, maybe even three on this list. If we all feel passionate about it. So I, I think ladies monologue is probably one of the ones that makes it, but I'm curious what you guys think overall. Yeah, I kind of feel like the Christmas game, which is another one that we have written out here, is something that stuck with me. And and even like the the very end of the movie is those are the the first things that sort of uh, yeah. If, if that, I had to if I had to pick one thing, I, I would pick that entire final montage, which is very much uh, beholden to the last temptation of Christ. That would yeah. be my my personal. Thing. We actually have we have two things in here for, to pull the ending. We have um, Green Knight's final montage. Green Knight's the final line of dialogue. Uh, I think those both could be combined into one if you wanted to. <laughs> um, finale, call yeah. it. Yeah, finale, yeah. I'm, yeah. Let's go and cut. Let's go ahead and cut um, one of those already. Just make one the Green Knight, the, the finale, because that final montage and the final line are as good as cinema got last year, and are in my very in my top five, maybe even my top three moments of the year. Um, so my question is, we'll go we'll come back to finale later on. Uh, but do we think the ladies' monologue is, is a surefire lock, or is this in discussion for now? I love the ladies' monologue, so I think I think it should be a surefire lock. If I were to choose the Green Knight's moments, it would be both the finale and the monologue because I can't pick one. Sounds, sounds like it should go into in discussion, and maybe we'll uh, come back around. Okay, whatever, to it. fine. Wow. <laughs> yeah, we've got hundred plus things to talk about. HC. Why do you have a gate? It's like, oh, whatever. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm putting it in discussion. Uh, HG, I think he's going to make it. I, I, I think that that and the finale are. Ones that have a very strong chance of making it, but also I think the Christmas game has a Christmas game scene is real good. <laughs> I Chris uh, nominate one to eliminate and one to keep. Uh, one to eliminate. Let's. I, I had it. All right, so I'm going to pick this. Uh, I didn't write this on the list, but I'm going to pick uh, being the Ricardos, the J. Edgar Hoover moment. <laughs> now. I did not dislike this movie. A lot of people seem to loathe this movie. I think it's it's okay for what it is. I, I like you know as as cringy as Aaron Sorkin could be. I think he's a he's a great writer of dialogue. He's really good at that you know that that 
that old school patter where people are just constantly talking back and forth. Uh, that said, this the, this movie ends. Uh, you know, if you haven't seen Being or Ricardo, uh, here here's the the basic. Re- it's it's set one week in the making of I Love Lucy when uh, Lucille Ball was accused of being a communist, and uh, you know they're all worried about you know the show getting canceled and all this stuff. And at the end of the at the end of the movie, uh, Desi Arnaz, Lucy's husband, is like, "I have a solution. This is going to fix everything." And he gets uh, you know a phone call from someone to to tell the the audience of I Have Lucy that Lucille Ball is not a communist. And at the very end, he says, "Who is on this phone?" And a voice says, "This is J. Edgar Hoover." And everyone, <laughs> and everyone in the audience is like, "Ooh!" And when I saw this, I was like, "What a bizarre ending!" And it was so strange that I was like, "Oh well, you know, since this is a true story." This must be what really happened. And I immediately looked it up. And no, this didn't. Jay Hoover did not call into the show and and bail Lucille Ball out. And look, I get that back when this scene is taking place, people would, you know, have respect for Jay Hoover because everyone was a big conservative nerd back then. And everyone was like, we all we love the FBI. But, <laughs> you know, Jay Hoover was like a legitimately evil person who who targeted uh black people and and uh, minorities and you know lied about tons of stuff and to to make jager hoover sort of like your default hero in your movie in this day and age is just is very very friggin weird and i i don't understand why like the scene is so badly done to that i was actually expecting the moment that follows it where where lucy and desi have an aside backstage for Desi to be like, just kidding, that wasn't the real Jagger Hoover. I paid someone to call it. <laughs> but no, it's supposed to be the real Jagger Hoover. And it's just, it's a very strange thing. So I would very much like this to not be on the list because it's just so odd to me. Who put it on here so they can come to its defense? I, I have a confession to make. I actually put this on here just so I could cut it, but Chris did it. <laughs> <laughs> Chris did it so much better than I ever could have that it was so much more entertaining. So yeah, it, it, this has served its purpose and it is no longer going to make this list. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so, so strange. It's, right. hell, it's a hell of a movie moment, though. Hell of a yeah, movie it's moment. It's true. It has to, we were talking about it so i guess it did its job um all right so now i gotta pick one to keep uh this is a tough one for me because uh if i had my 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 way i would have the entirety of the motion picture malignant just be on this list (laughs) literally every single scene because what a what a beautiful swan of a film that is um but if i have to pick one uh, and this is tough i i will pick uh, the jail sequence where uh, we finally learn the true nature of Gabriel, the serial killer, who is also a uh, a twin slash tumor who who lives in the back of the head of the main character. And uh, in this scene, the, the main character played by Annabella Wallace, she gets arrested and she's locked up in a, in a jail cell with a bunch of other women. And for reasons that I, I don't even know how to begin to explain, all the women look like they're time travelers from different <laughs> eras. Like one of them has like an, like, she's like a, an Afro. She looks like she's from like a black exploitation movie. And one of them is like a, a, a sort of a redneck played by, um, uh, what's her name? The, the stunt woman. Everyone knows. Ah, Zoe shit. Bell. Zoe Bell. So it's like, it's just a very strange group of people on this jail cell. And again, for reasons that are not quite explained, every woman in this jail cell decides to just start picking on Annabella Wallace's character. Little do they know, she has a uh, 
a monster serial killer face living in the back of her head. (laughs) They push her so far that Gabriel comes out and just brutally murders all of them. And it goes on. It feels like it goes on for like five full minutes of Gabriel just just brutally murdering all these rude prisoner women. people. And then, then he gets out of the cell uh, and murders a bunch of cops and throws chairs at people. And it's just, <laughs> it's so amazing. And, uh, you know, it's one thing if you're going to buy that, like, all right, this woman has a, another face growing out of the back of her head. But this also gives her, like, parkour powers and she can, like, flip around and do all these, like, kung fu moves. None of it is explained. And it's so wonderful. And uh, I, I just love bullying it from top to bottom. I, I rewatched it recently and it was even better revisiting it because, you know, when I saw it the first time, I didn't know what to expect. And I was sort of like gobsmacked at how friggin' weird the movie is. And then when you rewatch it, knowing how weird it is, it's even better. So uh, malignant jail cell, the entire jail sequence where it starts the jail cell and goes out into the police station is, is my vote. Yeah, I was actually thinking about isolating this down to just the chair throw, but the entire sequence is too special. It is too. It, the whole thing is malignant in a nutshell, which is so straight faced in its comedy while being gruesome, while just being gleeful in its excess. Uh, malignant belongs on this list, and I think this is a scene. Love it. I agree. Yeah. I, I adore this scene so much, especially when he's throwing <laughs> chairs at the cops in this way too large and expansive police station. I know. It looks like a museum. Yeah. Like, where, like, what police station looks like? They have, like, vaulted ceilings and stuff. It's amazing. It's incredible. It's incredible. All right. That was a lock. Uh, so we're one fifty the way there, guys. Uh, Brad, <laughs> Brad, pick one to kill and one to keep. Okay, uh, one to kill. I will kill this one because I put it on here. Um, and I, just, I think it's just worth mentioning just so that people are aware of it if they're not already. And that's uh, in Bad Trip, The Surprising Kindness of Strangers. It was hard to pick. I, th- I thought about like the pranks that are in this movie. And even though there are tons of great pranks, there, there's not one that's like a huge standout, like, oh, my God moment. Because they're all kind of equally absurd and shocking and, and ridiculous and, and vulgar. Um, but like for me, I think one of the, the surprising things about this movie was the how kind complete strangers were to uh, Eric Andre uh, and Lil Rahauri's characters and even Tiffany Haddish as well as they like get in trouble and like ask them for help in for in like weird circumstances or like get into like horrific accidents and trouble that like no one would really want to bring upon themselves, but they're like willing to like help them escape and get away and like hide secrets and keep things from other people just so that they don't get in trouble. Uh, and I thought that was just a, a great thing to see at a time when everything in the world seems to be pretty damn terrible. <laughs> Yeah, Bad Trip is, I feel like a lot of people miss that movie, and it's just sitting there on Netflix, and I think people should, A, know it's there, and B, go out of their way to watch it, because it maybe sounds dumb and gimmicky, but it's actually like one of the funniest movies I saw last year. It's yeah. really, really good. And they pull off some really impressive pranks uh, on people, too. The way that they do some of the things, it's it's super impressive. All right, Brad, uh, that one's eliminated, but people should have watched Bad Trip. Uh, what are you keeping? What should you, which, what belongs in Top 50? Uh, one of the things that I think uh, belongs in the top 50, and this is a silly one, uh, I'm a, but I'm going to make a push for it now just because it's pretty much the only really good thing about this movie. And it is really such a, a good gag that I wish that it was in a better movie. Um, and this is uh, Michael Jordan arriving in Space Jam, A New Legacy. Because uh, everyone was hoping for some kind of cameo from Michael Jordan since he's in the original Space Jam. And they lead up to it in such a big, exciting way. And then all of a sudden, 
Michael B. Jordan walks into the Toon Squad's locker room, and it's just a really great gag. It's it's a hilarious cameo. It's really funny. Uh, it comes out of nowhere, and it like it leans into the expectations that fans had for the movie and has some fun with it. See, I haven't seen this movie, and now you just mentioning that makes me want to watch it just to see that scene. <laughs> see? Yeah, see, there you go. My issue with this is that this sounds very, very funny. I would just feel super weird putting this locked in while we still have four Green Knight scenes on discuss. <laughs> yeah, does Michael B. Jordan show up in the Green Knight? I yeah, think. exactly. I think not. Yeah. Keegan shows up in the Green Knight. Uh, I'm 100% okay putting this into in discussion. I think this sounds very, very funny. I have not seen Space Jam and the Legacy, which is why I don't want to sign off on it yet until I hear from a bit more about the rest of the things on this list. Okay, okay. All right, but we'll put it in discussion. We'll see where it goes. Uh, ben, you're up. One to kill, one to keep. All right, one to kill is from uh, another very funny Netflix movie called America: The Motion Picture, which is just over the top and truly like, I mean, insanely gory, super violent, uh, completely historically accurate. <laughs> uh, just a, a totally ludicrous movie. But uh, there's a, a a totally random homage to the 2001 film Swordfish slammed right in the middle of this movie. And uh, America the Motion Picture takes place in like the 1770s or whatever. Uh, obviously well before the era of computers, but that doesn't stop this movie from doing a goddamn Swordfish homage to the scene where Hugh Jackman is sitting there just like typing and going crazy, looking at like a six or nine monitor setup. Um, and the way that it happens, uh, it just, it doesn't ever explicitly say like, Hey, this is, or, you know, nod to the fact that this is swordfish. No character pops in and says like, Hey, you know, nudge, nudge. Is that from the movie? So there's nothing like that. It's like, if you haven't seen swordfish or don't know that moment, this, this moment in the middle of American motion picture is just going to leave you completely baffled, uh, which is a big part of the reason why I love it. So uh, I know it's not going to be one of the top 50 movie moments of the year, but uh, I got a, a lot of enjoyment out of that. Um, and I, I don't know if anybody else did either, but uh, but that movie has some some really good gem little moments in there. So, yeah, I love this movie and I really love that reference. The, the thing is, it's like there's so many like really great, like awe inspiring moments. Like I, I it's, it's the same kind of thing with the Oscars where I think like comedy stuff ends up getting pushed like to the side. And I wish that this is a moment that like would end up on the list, but like, it it can be a hard sell, but it's it is such a good good gag, and like I, I do love the movie. So <laughs> yeah. All right, so that one's out. Uh, the one thing that I want to make sure that I get on this list is uh, a, a sort of one two punch moment from Swan Song, and both of these moments come near the end of the movie, so I think it's okay if we sort of combine them. Um, did anybody else hear? I know Swan Song ended up on my top ten movies of the year list. Did anybody else here end up having a chance to watch this? Yeah, I did. I'm actually the one that put this on here because it was close to being on my top 10. It definitely would have made my top 20. Um, and I thought that this like one, two punch that kind of happens at the end was like a perfect encapsulation of like the best moment in this movie. Oh, yeah, for sure. So the the very basic premise of Swan Song is that Mahershala Ali plays a character named Cameron Turner, who is married to um, a woman who's played by Naomi Harris, and she's excellent in the movie. And he discovers that he has a terminal illness, but he doesn't tell his family and instead uh, undergoes this sort of experimental procedure to have a clone made of him. And uh, the clone will then sort of be inserted back into his life and take over and it'll be like a seamless transition. So the family never knows. And the clone is not just like a, you know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger type movie clone. It's like actually 
a person who has every single one of his memories and experiences, like for all intents and purposes, it is him. Um, but it's just not sick. So the, the movie wrestles with the question of like, whether he should talk to his family about this, like, you know, whether he should basically go through with this, uh, this or not, if he should sort of let his family spare his family, the pain of losing him is is sort of what it's all about. And so when he ultimately decides, yes, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go through with this. He goes back to his family home when he's not supposed to. And the, the clone who goes by Jack basically like allows him, he gives him the gift of having one final interaction with his son. And Cameron's son is this really young kid. He's probably five years old or something. And they sit down at the, at the dinner table at night, like Cameron wakes him up from bed um, in the middle of the night and they sit down and they like share a drink. I think it's of apple juice or something. And Cameron is telling him the story about how, you know, his parents uh, let him taste beer when he was a young kid. And it's just this really, really um, heartbreaking moment of like, you know, that this is the last time that this guy is ever going to be able to interact with his son. And he's the, he wants to share a, a drink with his child and he's not going to be able to because he's about to die. And this, this clone is going to be able to sort of swing in and, and live the rest of his life and have all the experiences that Cameron himself is never going to be able to have. Uh, and it's really heartbreaking. And then at the very end of the movie, he um, is basically like cordoned off at this facility because the the clone Jack is now uh, integrated into Cameron's life and he's taken over. So there can't be two of them running around at the, at the same time. So Cameron is basically just like at this really nice sort of um, Iceland looking facility, like out on, in, the, in the middle of uh, the, the isolated wilderness. And uh, he gets this video call from Jack who sends him a message of like, he can see through uh, contact lenses basically. So, so Cameron can see this video feed and Jack has, has just gone up to Naomi Harris's character and just says like, look me in the eyes and tell me that you love me. So it's a way that, that Cameron who's standing there completely isolated and about to die can have this experience of, of seeing his wife look at him and tell him that, that she loves him one last time before he goes uh, and it's just like this completely heartbreaking, like tear jerking moment. And it, it also, um, yeah, kind of like speaks to the, the power of cinema and like the power of images. And uh, it's it's all of this sort of the culmination of the entire story in, in this big one, two gut punch. So um, it's really great stuff. And, and I think those two scenes alone make this movie worth watching. The work that Mahershala Ali does there is just uh, is excellent. So. Um, I'm glad that you put it on there, Brad. I assume that you, you'll back me on this one. Oh, yeah, 100%. I have not seen Swan Song, but uh, Ben's convinced me it probably belongs on this list. I haven't Anybody seen it else? I haven't, I haven't seen it, but I feel like a lot of people are not talking about this movie, so I'm all for putting it on the list just to highlight something that I feel like a lot of people are not even aware of because I feel like a lot of the Apple stuff is like – they needed to do a better job, man. <laughs> They're so yeah. bad at, at marketing. Like uh, they have good stuff on Apple TV plus And like, I, I feel like no one ever talks about it. Yeah. So. Even Coda, which they acquired for an insane amount of money at Sundance, they just dropped uh, quietly on the service and did not have any rollout at all, which everyone was expecting Coda to be like the big crowd pleaser movie of the year. And then it just disappeared. Yeah, I just I just watched that Apple show, The After Party, over the weekend, and it is so goddamn funny. And I feel like no one's gonna even watch it, even though it has like a bunch of famous people in it. Because yeah, it's great. They're bad. They're bad at their job over there at Apple. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this one song makes your top fifty. 
Yeah. Sure. I'm fine cool. with it. I am too. Yeah. Ben spoke about it with such passion that it's it feels like it's right. Yeah. All right. So I guess I'm next. I'm going to cut one that I put on here is kind of a gag, but I also have not stopped thinking about it. And that is um, Jared Leto's Bigfoot walk and the little things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about this. Yeah. Has anyone else seen this terrible movie? I have. I saw. I reviewed it. The little things. Yeah. Denzel Washington and Rami Malek, uh, detective movie that is uh, incredibly boring and incredibly underwhelming. And Jared Leto shows up as the, the, the chief suspect in this, in this crime. And Jared Leto, being the actor that he is, apparently decided, I'm going to walk like Bigfoot. He spends the entire movie walking like Bigfoot. There are scenes where Denzel Washington is watching him cross the street, and Jared Leto's crossing the street, walking like Bigfoot. Yeah, and I, I laughed that. every single time. It was not intentional, but I, I've thought about Jared Leto's Bigfoot walk and that choice so much. But I also think the little things does not belong within a mile of our list. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm happy to eliminate that because I totally forgot this movie came out this year. What a weird movie that was. The movie that ends with the message. It's like, it's okay if the cops frame someone. It's all right. <laughs> it's not a big deal. <laughs> all right. I'm, I'm going to grab one that I think I think we'll all agree belongs in top 50. Uh, I think I, if you don't think so, then we're going to have words right now. Oh. And that is uh, Edgar's Prayer from Barb and Star. Go to Vista Del Mar. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. There's no way this can't be on the list. It's so goddamn funny. Jamie oh, Dornan's big seen... music. <laughs> So oh really? Oh. I'm so uh, sorry. It, it is pure joy. I think it's streaming on like Hulu. I want to uh, say or something. Oh, well, then I'll pitch this to HT. HT, it's uh, Jamie Dornan on a beach, uh, singing to the seagulls on the beach about the love of his life, tearing off his shirt, climbing trees, and singing every liter- literal action he does on screen while he dances, and eventually other people join in the song to add backup vocals. It is the wildest it is it is the best lonely island song lonely island never did huh. yeah people keep talking about jamie dornan singing in belfast when this is the superior jamie <laughs> dornan singing scene <laughs> and this what? is yeah. like jamie dornan's channing tatum moment i think brad and i were talking about this recently maybe on a podcast or maybe not but like the that moment where channing tatum went from like a eh, you know he's like fine i guess actor to like oh man this guy like actually has like good comedic chops like that there's that period that like couple year stretch where Channing Tatum had this really good like turnaround moment I feel like Barb and Star is that moment for Jamie Dornan like it, it made me look at him in an entirely new light yeah I never cared about him until this this movie and this is it, the exact same thing with Channing Tatum once he did 21 Jump Street I was like okay I'm in on Channing Tatum yeah um uh, I don't want to sell this too hard but um let me find the one part I want to um make very very clear as to why this is the moment um I have the lyrics open, but I can't find what I'm looking for because it's a very bad page. It is streaming on Hulu currently for those of you okay. who uh, who are curious. You should about just that. paraphrase it like I tried to paraphrase the Green Knight monologue and did terribly. <laughs> Where are you, man? This is very, very, very exciting. Um, okay, I'm going to read some 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 lyrics to you, HD. Seagulls in the sand, can you hear my prayer? I keep trying, but I'm getting nowhere. Heads in a fog, I'm under her spell. Am I in heaven or am I in hell? And later, uh, uh, picture Jamie Dornan doing everything he's describing here. This is, he, he's singing what he's doing. Leaping, doing the splits from my heart, going higher and higher, my legs spread apart. Now I'm twirling like a baby ballerina who's digging a hole with the force of his feet. Watch me climbing. I'm climbing up a palm tree like a cat up a palm tree who's trying to go up a palm tree. 
<laughs> All right. Yeah, I'm I'm on board. I yeah. I don't think I, I'll have any uh, objection to it being on the list. Okay, that's Edgar's prayer on our list. Anyway, we made one time around. HG, it's back to you. All right. Okay, let's see. Thing that I want to eliminate. Um, I'll eliminate another thing that I nominated that I don't think would make the list, but it's a, a moment that I really liked. And that is Olivia Coleman dancing in The Lost Daughter. And I'm always a sucker for a good dancing scene, but what I really like about this scene in which Olivia Coleman's character dances to uh, Living on a Prayer is that it's not about the th- sort of cathartic release and joy that you see in a lot of cinematic dance scenes. It's kind of one that's very much on edge. Uh, throughout this film, Olivia Coleman's character has been sort of interacting with this family at this Greek resort um, who are implied to be a bunch of gangsters who kind of run the island. Um, and she sort of befriends them after Dakota Johnson's character, who was part of the family, um, briefly loses her daughter. And um, she, Olivia Coleman's character, finds her and they bond over that uh, and also bond over similar sort of miserable miserable motherhood type of uh type of uh, uh experiences and um he, we find out that uh, Olivia Coleman's character has stolen the do- the doll the of um uh Dakota Johnson's daughter and uh has did it just kind of for laughs just for fun um and this whole lost doll situation has put the entire family on edge and she's kind of in the crosshairs of this family already so she's dancing as this as the bunch of the family members are kind of on the edge and glaring and there seems to be some sort of violence that is that will soon explode but um she or she is just kind of literally dancing on the edge with ed harris and it's a it's a really fascinating scene and one that i think um i don't know olivia, olivia coleman acts her her ass off because she's she's one she's a character who's so unsympathetic and does not care about how what she's sort of done to hurt some of these people but or, or even hurt the people that she loved but she is almost carefree in a lot of ways and especially in this scene i i think it's a really fascinating character study and a really fascinating character moment uh but i think i can eliminate that so that's olivia coleman dances in the lost daughter let's see one that i want to nominate <laughs> um this is one that I think might be considered a gag, but I, I really want it to be on our list. Uh, it's the club slash rave scene from Venom, Let There Be Carnage. I must admit, I still have not seen the first Venom. I went in to see Venom, Let There Be Carnage in theaters uh, at the invite of, of a friend, and I was like, you know what? Why not? <laughs> and so having not seen Venom, I went to see Let There Be Carnage, and I wholly enjoyed it what a silly silly film that leans into its silliness and its queerness at that and this club slash rave scene uh is the epitome of its queerness it's the scene in which uh venom uh after having had a fight with um uh eddie tom Tom hardy's character eddie uh leaves his body and is basically jumping through all these all the bodies of these club goers and um he uh, is in his full venom form and is embraced by everyone in this very gay club. And at one point he says, I'm coming out of the Eddie closet. And everyone says, we love you. And I, he says, I love you, random club goer. And it's just this unabashedly queer 
silly, joyful moment. And at the end, a Venom, after partying with all of his people, just sits in a corner and says, I miss you, Eddie. And it's a wonderful, it's a love story. It's a rom-com. <laughs> it's just, it's so, so silly and so fun. And um, I, I was just, <laughs> I was just clapping at this scene. I thought it was incredible. So I nominate for the list, the club slash rave scene from Venom, Let There Be Carnage. I regret to inform you this belongs on the list. <laughs> no, don't regret to inform me. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that the first time we ever did this list uh, is a podcast. We included the lobster tank scene from Venom where Tom Hardy gets a lobster tank. So I think it's tradition. I think we should have a Venom scene <laughs> every time we can. Even when there isn't a Venom movie out, we should yeah, just, just have do a Venom, Venom scene. scene. So, yeah. <laughs> I have no objection to this being on the list. I, I, uh, I had fun with Venom 2. Venom 2 is a, a very, very silly movie. I have no objections to silliness. I haven't seen it, but put it on the list. Yeah, I'm, I'm down for it. It's it's uh, it's a good scene in a, a very, very silly movie. All right. It's locked in. Venom, Little Be Carnage, the club rave scene. Let me just say that the scene that I nominated that got locked in is Venom, Let There Be Carnage. And the one that didn't get locked in is The Green Knight. Look. Hey, there are five Green Knight teams we need to talk about before we lock one in. All I, right, uh, fine. I'm just saying. Okay, continue. Chris, you're up. <laughs> oh, man. I, I wish I weren't getting so old because I literally had a scene I wanted to cut. Now I can't remember it because my brain sucks. Oh, here it is. I remember. <laughs> so um, I put this on the list, but I'm going to put it to cut because I don't think it's going to make it. Um, it is uh, a scene from The Card Counter, which is a very good movie that I feel like a lot of people just didn't even bother to see this year. Uh, sorry, last year. Um uh, sh- long story short, this comes at the end of the movie. Um, through the whole movie, uh, Oscar Isaac's character and Ty Sheridan's character are talking about getting a kind of revenge against a character played by Willem Dafoe. And Willem Dafoe was this military guy who taught uh, torture techniques for um, military prisons. And the whole movie they're talking about, we got to get revenge on this guy. And Oscar Isaac keeps trying to talk Ty Sheridan's character out of getting revenge on him. And uh, through a series of uh, unfortunate events, Ty Sheridan's character actually ends up dead. And Oscar Isaac finally goes to Willem Dafoe's house to confront him. And uh, Paul Schrader, who directed the movie, does this really fascinating thing where, uh, you know, there's there's this huge buildup where, you know, these two guys are standing in a room together. And it's like, oh, shit, there's going to be this, you know, this really big brawl here. And then they both go into another room and the camera, like, zooms back and pans away and we never actually see them actually have a confrontation but we see like the aftermath where uh oscar isaac is um ends up in jail so you can you can guess where it goes from there and i just thought that was such a unique way to do that rather than give us that like violent catharsis that we're all expecting he he holds it back and it reminded me a lot of um there's a scene in taxi driver which paul schrader wrote so it's it's not a coincidence where uh uh, Travis Bickle, Robert De Niro's character, he, he's such a, you know, he has no social skills and he takes um, a woman on a date and his idea of a date is they go to like a, a porno theater and the date is like, I'm horrified by this. And later he tries to call her to sort of apologize and sort of ask for a second date and and Scorsese does this thing where rather than stay on the phone call, he, he pulls back and he like zooms down a hallway and in interviews, Scorsese said he did that because it's meant to represent that the phone call is just so painful that he doesn't want to like linger on it. And so this this sort of reminded me of that. But again, I don't think it would make the list. So I'm fine cutting it. Are you uh, sure? Because this sound, I, have not, I have not seen the card counter, but this sounds really good. 
I mean, I wouldn't object to it being on the list, but I also feel like we have what eight thousand entries to get through. <laughs> so I'm 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 willing to sacrifice it. But I, I will uh, say it's my favorite scene from the card counter. But that's all I'll add to it. HD, I mean, would, I, would you want to put it in discussion at least, or are you cool cutting it? Because I, I, I I'm cool cutting it too, but I just want. It sounds like it sounds like a really good scene. I think I think for now we should put it in in discussion and see like what we end up cutting in the meantime, and maybe there'll be room for it. I feel I mean, more yeah, com- that's I, fine. I feel more comfortable doing that, honestly. Okay. Okay. Sure. Um, all right, Chris. All right. What are we keeping? So uh, this I'm going to really fight for. I feel like this must be on the list, and it is the last duel. Every scene with Ben Affleck. And <laughs> we, can get, we can get away with with such a broad scope of this because I remember the last one we did was. Elizabeth Debicki is tall in tennis. <laughs> so if we could have that, we can have this. Because, look, Last Duel is a great movie. Um, I'm, I'm so bummed that it didn't do well at the same time at the box office. At the same time, I know it's it's tricky subject matter. You know, it deals with sexual assault. And not everyone wants to sit through that. Uh, you know, I, I can't fault anyone for not wanting to see that. That said, uh, in the midst of all this, this uh, gruesomeness, you know, there's a lot of violence in the movie. There's a lot of dirt and grime and unpleasant stuff. There's also Ben Affleck, who is just having the time of his life playing this uh, debauched uh, count who's just constantly drinking and having orgies and saying stuff that people from this era would not be saying. And there's a scene where Adam Driver's character is is doing math on an abacus because that's what they had back then. And Ben Affleck walks to the room, grabs the abacus and smashes it for no reason. And then he says, sorry, and walks out <laughs> of the room. I I want every goddamn Ben Affleck scene from the latest duel on this list because Ben Affleck is, is just stealing scenes left and right in this thing. He does not have a big role, but every time he shows up, the movie is just like, it comes to life even more so than it. it's just like, yes. Ben Affleck is here with his really weird haircut and he's going to say some things and I'm having a great time. I just, I, whenever I think of The Last Duel, I always think of that scene where Adam Driver's character uh, urgently knocks on the door of the Count and to tell him the news that he's being sued by um, Matt, Matt Damon's Damon. character and uh, Ben Affleck immediately just, just says, oh, you're here, take off your pants. Yes. <laughs> he's, just, he's just always inviting Adam Driver to partake in orgies with him. And I, it's just a, just a delightful character in a, in a nasty movie. Uh, it belongs to the list. This is a lock for me. You have my sword, Chris. Yes. <laughs> All right. My and my axe. <laughs> uh, ben, have I heard from you yet? Uh, yeah, I loved I loved Ben Affleck in this movie. He was the best part of it. <laughs> okay. Locked in. Uh, all right, so um, Brad, you're up next. What are you killing? What are you keeping? All right, what am I killing? What am I killing? This is a good question. Um, I will kill... Um, I'm going to kill... The Sparks Brothers, the end credits. Uh, This is a great documentary directed by Edgar Wright uh, about the band Sparks. And um, the the movie itself doesn't necessarily have any like big wow moments in it, but it's just this fascinating chronicle of this band that you may or may not have heard of. They've been working for like uh, 50 years. They've reinvented themselves countless times. Um, And one of the the funniest, more amusing things about this documentary is at the very end, there are a lot of uh, misconstrued rumors, false facts and things like that, that people think they know about Sparks. And the entire end credits is basically a stream of a bunch of new ones, like fake facts and fun bits of trivia that may or may not be true that each of the Sparks uh, say about themselves in the credits. And it's very funny and very cheeky. uh, And it's just something that is very purely Edgar Wright. He's having a lot of fun with this band that he loves so much. But I don't think it's going to make the list just because there's so many other things here. Uh, But if you haven't watched the Sparks Brothers, it's on Netflix right now. You should definitely seek it out. 
All right. Goodbye, Sparks Brothers. Uh, but you should definitely watch it. What do you want to keep, Brad? Um, I want to keep, um, and I don't think we'll have a hard time keeping this one here. I hope anyway. But uh, Spencer's seen uh, All I Need is a Miracle. Uh, this uh, I've seen Spencer twice now, and uh, this scene I just love every single time. It is just a moment that is uh, full of pure joy and uh, just life, uh, life and energy uh, in a movie that is full of dread and just completely haunting. Uh, and you just feel the love that there is between uh, Diana and her kids as they have left um, the, the the royal grounds after a harrowing Christmas um, where Diana has endured just so much scorn and judgment and, uh, you know, general psychological terror. Uh, and she leaves early uh, with her kids, dragging them away from a hunting uh, outing with their, their father. And they just hop in her convertible and they're just jamming out to All I Need is a Miracle. And it's just a wonderful scene. And I, I love it so much. I think Chris will be all about this. Yeah, I, I will I will go to bat for this. I, I really love Spencer. I know not everyone liked it. Tragically, I watch it with my wife and she did not like it, so we're getting a divorce. <laughs> no, but she did she was like, it was she was like, it was okay. And I was just like, ooh, to the moon, Alice. But um <laughs> I'm kidding. I do not threaten my wife with abuse like Ralph Crandon. But um <laughs> uh I, I think this scene uh definitely belongs on this because it, it is such a it's like a balm because like, like Brad said, everything before this scene is so tense. It's like a horror movie. And then all of a sudden there's, a, there's like a, there's a fun 80s sing along and it's like, ah, what a, what a breath of fresh air after all that stifling awfulness. So I, I definitely support this. I'm also on board. I don't know why I was not called out for supporting Spencer because it's also one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, but yeah, this, the scene is, is so sweet and it just is that, that uh, out the outtake of breath after um, just ho- that just holding it in the entire time, and um, I think that it's just uh, it's it's so cathartic and wonderful and it's, joyful it's what and the movie, yeah, it's what the movie needs because mm-hmm. you know at the back of our heads when we're watching this, you know, there's that knowledge that you know no matter what she's doomed, she's going to die in a car accident when she's very young, and so there's this one. It's like at least she got this one moment of happiness. It's a, it's a nice it's a nice moment. Yeah, and it's almost kind of a fantasy moment too because we know what happens and maybe maybe she didn't get this moments of reprieve where she ran away with her kids and went to get fast food. Get KFC. <laughs> get KFC. Um, but we get to see that and we get to experience that and that's perfectly fine. It's kind of like the fantasy moment in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where we get to see uh, everyone living and happy and this <clears> is <throat> this is that moment for for us, for Diana. That's such yeah. a good connection. HD. I know. Yeah. Aren't I great? Good, good job. <laughs> this, is, this is on the list. Guys, there's no way it's not on the list. Yes. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Brad. Uh, next up is Ben. Kill one, keep one. All right. I want to kill one, keep one from the same movie. I want to kill every time Kate Blanchett smokes a cigarette in Nightmare Alley. Uh, and I want to keep <laughs> the final scene slash job interview in Nightmare Alley. Uh, to be clear, I really like Kate Blanchett's performance in Nightmare Alley. She is definitely doing a full-on film noir, femme fatale, Barbara Stanwyck type of thing. And I think I've seen or heard some, some, you know, from some corners of the internet that like her performance doesn't jive well with the rest of the film or something like that. I don't know what, what? these people are talking what? about. I really, that. What moron I, said I don't recall that. Where, I, where I heard or read that. But, Take them off uh, the internet. <laughs> 
but yeah, I think she she fits really really well into this this sort of like dark milieu that that uh, Guillermo del Toro created here. And um, yeah, so I, I like her performance a lot. I think the final moment of this movie though is the moment of the movie. And looking at you know the the titanic amount of stuff that we have to get through, I think only one moment moment from Nightmare Alley stands a chance of of making it on this list. So. Uh, farewell, you fantastic cigarette smoker. Um, <laughs> but but I think that we got to clear out some space for that final scene. Okay, I'm fine with that. And yes, that final scene I think deserves a spot on the list. Ugh, yeah. What a as as long as we all acknowledge scene. what a smoke show Kate Blanchett is in this movie, I think oh, I'm God, fine with she's that. So hot. In this movie. <laughs> anyway, literally, <laughs> burning up the screen. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So really quickly, the, the final moment is uh, the entire film is it sort of hinges on Bradley Cooper's character. He's this guy who starts off uh, at, a, at a carnival and becomes a, a mentalist and uh, sort of like his ambition ultimately becomes his undoing. And he tries to con people out of money and uh, has this, this encounter with uh, a character played by Richard Jenkins and anyway, ends up sort of on the run and like down on his luck. And uh, the it's the circular... Uh, um, sort of like almost predestined thing at the very end of the movie where he ends up going into a, an office hat in hand and saying, Hey, I'd I'd love to like join this other carnival, this traveling carnival, like back to where he started. And uh, the guy who's running the the thing um, basically says the only place that we have, the the only job that we have to fill is a geek, which is like a real thing that actually happened uh, a real position that, that people had where like, largely they were given to alcoholics and like the, the geek position was like people would just like literally bite heads off of live chickens. And these people were so like drunk and strung out that they didn't really know what they were doing or, or maybe the, the, uh, the alcohol or the drugs was the only, was the only way that they could cope with what they're doing. And Bradley Cooper, who was like at one point in this movie at the peak of his, you know, charismatic powers and like living it up in high society and like wearing suits. And, you know, he had Rooney Mara as a girlfriend and like everything seemed to be going well. And like his own sort of like, uh, yeah, greed and ambition ended up leading him back to this place. And this final moment where he, he looks the guy in the eye and says like, Mr. I was born for this job basically. Um, and also and- you should point out that the geek thing is like teased like throughout the movie too. Yes. Like the way it's yeah. built up to it is what makes it. So yeah. Funny. He sees a geek at the, at the very beginning of the movie at the, the carnival that he sort of like learns his trade at and is sort of like horrified at, at this concept. And, uh, and he's yeah, he's, he's like, how, how does someone become a geek? I can't imagine that happening to me. Wah, wah. Yeah. Yeah. He sees how they're employed, quote unquote, which is basically a kidnapping by Willem Dafoe's character from the, from Nightmare Alley. Um, and he, you know, turns his nose up at them. He'll never be like them kind of thing. And then it's a full yeah. circle cautionary tale that he ends well, up. Well, 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 isn't the consequences of my actions. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. And like his, his sort of like uh, broken laugh at the very end is just like, this haunting moment that is really like one of the best. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Captain Phillips where like everybody talks about uh, Tom Hanks's performance in the very, very end of that movie where he just sort of like breaks down and has this cathartic breakdown. And, and this is like uh, Bradley Cooper has been, has been so like, um, like sort of a, uh, he's been like, an, uh, like uh, on a live wire or something, the whole movie. And this, this last moment is like him, uh, leaning into the the sort of misery of his existence and like knowing like oh shit I guess I did uh, I guess these are the consequences of my action I guess this is this is what um, I deserve to to like be you know biting the heads off chickens in this terrible job so um, it's it's a great moment from Bradley Cooper and a, a really great moment in the movie. Well, I've put in the top fifty. It sounds like we're all in on this one. Yeah. yeah. 
right, I'm going to go ahead and get this speed things up a little bit. I'm going to kill all three scenes from Jungle Cruise. Um, yeah. Sorry, Why guys. Why do we have three scenes from Jungle Cruise on this list? There are three scenes here, or three moments <laughs> that I really like in this movie that I, I enjoy more than most. Uh, one is Jesse Plemons is going for it. Jesse Plemons takes on a German accent, plays this really sociopathic, murderous villain who has this very goofy, like whimsical German accent, uh, but is also very soft spoken and also has a sword cane in the statue. I think he like, communicates with bees at one point. Yeah. Or something. <laughs> he's, a, he's having a great time. Yeah. He's like having the most fun. The uh, other one I put here is there is a man made entirely out of snakes, which is uh, Edgar Ramirez plays a man made entirely out of snakes in the movie. And I thought that was neat. Uh, and finally, the Dwayne Johnson is immortal montage. Where we learned that he is cursed to be immortal and can't die. And he's just this guy who his whole character of I'm too cool for this. I'm laid back. I'm all chill out. Is just a guy who is incredibly bored and sad and wants to die. And I, thought be, I thought it was a very, very fun reveal, actually, in a movie that uh, I did not expect there to be an immortal Dwayne, Dwayne Johnson pop up halfway through the movie. Uh, I, I thought those are all pretty okay moments or you know better than okay moments i really enjoyed in an okay movie and i'm cutting all three of them um jungle cruise i think it's pretty good dwayne johnson wears a fun hat um (laughs) for keeping though we have a few moments from this movie on this list but there's one here that i feel that i strongly feel needs to be on it and this is um the suicide squad uh the scene where harley quinn slices her way into starro's eye then watches a bunch of rats swim in and eat starro's brains um because this is a scene in a superhero movie a big budget r-rated superhero movie from from dc and warner brothers where the joker's girlfriend wearing a dress she acquired from a south american dictator's uh, wardrobe carrying a javelin she carried she picked off the corpse of a of another character slices her way into a giant starfish's eyeball while an army of rats swim into his eyeball juices and eat his brain to kill him James Gunn got away with something here, guys. He got away with this scene uh, that I saw projected on a big screen. Uh, and I don't think there is a wilder, more deranged scene in modern superhero cinema. And we should all aspire to have more James Gunn scenes like this projected on on, on, on mass well, on, motion picture screen. That's my On top idea. of that, too, he just he made it like kind of a beautiful sequence too. Like just the way like yeah. the, the colors pop and like the way, like the, the blood starts swirling inside of Starro's eye. Once the rats start tearing it apart, it's really done in a visually spectacular way. Uh, I have, you know, I don't, uh, <laughs> tripping over my words here. Like Woody Allen. I, I don't, uh, I have no objection to this. I did not love the suicide squad. It actually left me kind of cold and I was really looking forward to it, but the way Jacob just described this scene made me want to kind of revisit it. So I, you know, I don't have any objections to it. Yeah. I think if we're going to nominate one scene from the Suicide Squad, this should be it because I do think it's both grotesque and absurd uh, and kind of beautiful. It is a, both a uh, action climax and an emotional climax in a lot of ways where we see everyone band together to defeat Sorrow, but it's about a bunch of rats eating its brains out. And I think that's... <laughs> That's beautiful. Maybe in the interest of time, we can briefly discuss and eliminate the other three moments on this list from, from Suicide yeah. Squad. I'm I'm willing to cut two of these moments. There's one that I will fight for. Okay. Um, I'm assuming that is not every time King Shark speaks. Uh, no, it is actually every time King Shark speaks, <laughs> Jacob, because King Shark is a big, dumb, beautiful gentleman, and every line he has in this movie is hilarious and goofy, and I just love it. He, the way he just lumbers around and mindlessly eats things and thinks that he's so smart and reads books upside down, King Shark is a treasure and a gem, and everything he does in this movie is incredible. 
okay, well, let's open the other two real quick and maybe write them off here. Uh, Peacemaker uh, and Idris Elba, whose character's name is escaping me. Um, I think it's Bloodshot. 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 Yeah. Uh, Peacemaker and Bloodshot have a kill off. This is a scene where they both walk into the what they think is the enemy encampment and both start killing people like ruthlessly and efficiently while staring at each other as if they're having a contest, like this like dick measuring contest between two assholes trying to prove they're a better killer. It is so dark and so funny, uh, but it doesn't make the list. Um, well, it's really the the funny part about it is that it's revealed that the people that they've just murdered are like the team that are that they're there to help yeah. or like that, yeah. that are there to help them. So like it's this great moment that that is then like immediately undercut and sort of underlined in a great way. Uh, the other one is most of the team dies in the beach. It's the opening scene where like two thirds of the cast dies horribly in the opening ten minutes, which is very funny and very surprising. But I think if we're going to keep a moment that's in the spirit of what this movie ultimately goes toward, the Starro sequence is one to keep. And plus, unfortunately, it's a little bit undercut by the fact that Deadpool 2 kind of did it ahead of time. And it was also a very funny sequence where his entire, you know, team got, got killed. And, and also, also McGruber. Yes, that as yeah. well. Yep. So it sounds to me like we, the Star Wars scene goes in top 50 and King Shark goes into in discussion, maybe? I'm fine with that. Yeah, it works yes. for me. All right, I'll make that happen while HT, you're up. Oh, oh, I actually was not prepared for this. Oh, no. Okay, I'll be fine. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. One that I want to eliminate. Um, I am going to eliminate something for sure. <laughs> this, this is going really well. Yeah. We're, we're, we're all fooled by this. Keep going. All right. Um, this is something that I actually added pretty last minute, but I, uh, I'm going to eliminate it. Uh, even though I really like this moment, I think it's one of my favorite line readings of the of the year. But it's the scene from Licorice Pizza where uh, Sean Penn's character is uh, sort of courting uh, Elena. All right, is it Heim or Heim? Um, it's Heim. Heim. Okay. Because yeah. I was saying Heim for a while too, but it's actually Heim. Okay. Lana Heim. And um, he tells her, you remind me of Grace. And she says, Kelly? <laughs> and I thought that was one of my favorite line readings of the year. I thought that she she just completely nailed like that oblivious naivete and, and in a really funny and effortless way. So I just wanted to shout out that moment because I love that line reading. Um, anyone else have any passion about that line? It's a very, I mean, I love the whole movie. But yeah. I, I definitely like that. Line. I haven't seen the movie yet. I'm really excited to see it one day, maybe. <laughs> All right. We can eliminate that. Um, and one that I actually really want to fight for, I don't know if anyone else will, but this is a scene from Petite Maman. It's Celine Sciamma's uh, new film. And it follows the adventures of a young girl who um, is at, with, at her grandmother's house to pack up the house after her grandmother has died um, with her mom. And her mom suddenly disappears throughout this process, kind of not being able to deal with the grief of being in her childhood home and losing her mom. And um, while Nellie, the the young girl, is sort of exploring the woods around this house, she finds her way um, somehow to an identical house. And it turns out it's the same house, but many years before. Um, And she meets her mom as a young child, the same age as her. And um, she and and her young mom become best friends. They just play together immediately and uh, form a really strong friendship. And it's kind of not really explained why this time travel happens, why this uh, sort of tunnel through time has 
suddenly exists and why she's given the chance to play with and understand her mom as a young child. Uh, it just kind of is. And that's what I really love about this film. But the moment that I want to highlight uh, is when uh, Nellie is um, speaking with her mom as a child, Marion. Marion, And uh, she tells her that, oh, I'm your daughter from the future. Um, I, you know, am here because we're cleaning out the house after your my grandmother has died. Um, and she's kind of talking about the depression that her mom uh, is going through and how sometimes she falls into these sort of pits of sadness. Uh, and Marion, as a young child, tells her, you didn't invent my sadness. And I absolutely love this line because it's such a simple coming from a child type of line where it, but it at the same time gives, takes the burden off of Nellie's shoulders. It, it, it relieves her of any sort of guilt or blame for her mother's sadness or anything. And the wisdom that comes from her mother as a child and the wisdom that this whole movie holds, I think is just kind of really um, contained within this line to each uh, that a young Marion gives to her future daughter. And uh, I absolutely love it. And I will fight for this to be on the list. And I know Ben has seen Petite Maman. Yeah, I think this this line, this moment should definitely be in there because it, it not only uh, lifts the, the weight off of one character, but it also deepens and humanizes another character. Like the, the young version of Marion, you realize that at this age, if she's already saying, you didn't invent my sadness, she already has it. Like, you know, she is a, a more complicated figure than uh, Nelly made her out to be. And it's like that great moment where like everybody has this, where you you're growing up and you realize like, Oh shit, like my parents are actually, you know, they were real people and they're not just like these totemic figures in my life. Um, and I thought that was that line sort of encapsulates that uh, sort of recognition really beautifully. Yes. I think if we put Swan Song on this list is like Ben's passion choice. And I hundred percent think HT's moment here should go on the list. Yes. I, uh, I've seen this movie. It is uh, just wonderful. And this scene uh, broke me in ways I didn't think I could still be broken. So I, I, I support this scene being on the list. All right. All right. Uh, Chris, you're up. Kill one, keep oh, one. Oh, no. I should probably be prepared for this since we've been doing it for a while, but I'm not. All right, I'm going to start with one. I want one on the list because that's what I have in the front of my head. And uh, I got to get something from West Side Story on this list. And I, it's very difficult for me to, to pick one. Oh, because... How do we go over the four that are on here and we can help you narrow it down? Okay, so uh, first is the, the restaging of Cool, which is actually my favorite song in the show in general. And it's done in a completely different way here than it was done in the, uh, the original movie where... Yeah, different characters sing it. The the perspective of of the song is completely different. Um, it's uh, it's staged on this this like rickety pier, and uh, the characters are running all over the place, and they're singing this song, and they they get like you can see them getting like tired and sweaty and just burned out just performing this number. It just looks exhausting to watch, and it's so different than you know, like I said, the the, the original film's version that I. I uh, absolutely loved it. Um, the other is uh, America, which I feel like is the scene that everyone talks about from this movie, and rightfully so, because, uh, again, Spielberg um, changes things up and he stages it completely differently. The, 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 the original movie stages it almost entirely on a rooftop, and it's like the, 
the biggest rooftop in the world because there's like a hundred people up there somehow. And um, this one, it, it, it goes out into the streets and he gets like the entire neighborhood sort of involved in this musical number. And um, so good. Uh, what else is on here? Um, the opening shot, uh, the Spielberg opens the film uh, in this really unique way where the camera is slowly panning across all this rubble and ruin and uh, you see a bunch of like ruined fire escapes. And I feel like if anyone thinks of West Side Story, they immediately think of you know fire escapes because those are like on the poster and that's sort of like the whole thing. And uh, right from the start, he's signaling, oh, this is something different because the, the fire escapes are here, but they're, they're, they're being demolished. And it's eventually the camera pans up to reveal that they're, they're clearing out this neighborhood in New York. The neighborhood was called San Juan Hill and um, they're clearing it out to, to make way for what would eventually be Lincoln Center. And, um, you know, it's all about, uh, quote unquote, slum clearance, which is something, um, you know, that really happened. But the original movie doesn't actually touch on this at all, which is uh, another way that, you know, this this version recontextualizes things and changes things up. And can, I, can, then, can, I, can, I, can I jump in real quick? You know, about this, about this shot? Of course. Uh, what I like about this shot is it gen- it literally looks like you're looking at a battlefield. It looks like a city's been torn apart by war. And this uh this is a visual that gets played again throughout the rest of the movie. It's so often scenes that are taking place in buildings that are so neglected, uh, so torn down, so dangerous that it looks like a, a, a literal war zone is happening. And for a movie that's about a gang war, it feels all too appropriate. And the idea that these people are fighting this literal war across city blocks uh, while the larger forces at work are just trying to build Lincoln Center uh, is such a damning and haunting way to open this movie. And it's echo in the closing shot, which is a, which is a pan up instead of a tilt down or whatever, but it's, it's all, it's all, I don't know. I, I think both opening and closing shots are amazing. And you, back to you, Chris. Yeah. So uh, I, I really don't know. Like I would honestly love to get both cool and America on here, but I don't know if I'm, I'm pushing my luck there. So uh, can I put my vote in for one? Sure. I would vote do. for cool because I really, yeah. really like how Spielberg recontextualizes this number, which in the first film uh, takes place after the rumble and is sort of like a more uh, interpretive mood dance number, which I it, really like. But I think that this one adds ratchets up the tension by making it more na- of a narrative and character piece. And it, it's like a big, it actually involves like the main characters. Mm-hmm. Like, the, you know, the, 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 the previous film, it's like supporting characters. Performing yeah. it. And this one it's, you know, it's Tony and it's a uh, riff. And it's also like a breakup song. It's about these two guys, you know, who, uh, uh, you know, love each other for lack of a better word, realizing they're, they've, They've grown apart too much. You know, there's no going back. You know, Riff wants wants Tony to 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 join the the Jets again, and Tony does not want that. And it's you know the the way that that whole number like the number is like full of life and energetic, but it's also really dark and upsetting. And it ends on this really down note where yeah. you know the, these two guys who when we first see them share the scene together at the beginning of the movie, they're you know they're thick as thieves. They're they're you know putting their arm around each other, and then this scene it ends with this song ends with them like you know just glaring at each other like they they like they never want to see each other again. It's <laughs> yeah. such a it's so good. It's can such I, an electric uh, number. I really really love it. I like to pitch everybody on this. We can let's cut the opening closing shots. They're they're amazing, but I think we can narrow narrow it down. Like we can put cool in the top fifty in the America sequence in the discussion because I'm not ready to cut America yet, but I think cool should be the top fifty. Right. Uh, I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah, it yes. works for me. All right, so Chris, um, you want to treat those two West Side Story cuts as your cuts, or do you want to go ahead and nominate something? 
Uh, well, I mean, I nominated Cool, so that. that I mean, so, no, so, so, something to get rid of. I mean, since you nom- since you didn't, you didn't, you haven't yet properly nominated something to get rid of. Oh, okay, yeah. Let's see. Oh boy. Hmm. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm making this longer than it needs to be. Um, grab something easy. Oh man. Shit. Fuck. What movie did uh, you can, hate? Man. Oh, how long do you have? Uh, let's. <laughs> Can we cut literally anything from the Tomorrow War, please? I know, I know. <laughs> Sam Richardson is really funny in that movie, and I love Sam Richardson. But everything else in that movie just stinks to high heaven. I'm sorry. Can, 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 can I say goodbye to my three scenes from Tomorrow War? <laughs> okay, that, that I can cut them all. Okay, yeah. All right. There's a scene where Sam Richardson is being chased by an alien. And he says shit about 50 times in 30 seconds. He that just, is very funny. He's just running while saying shit, 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 while an alien chases him, and. uh I don't know if you, if that was scripted or for Sam Richardson improving, uh, but I, I the most human reaction I've ever seen to someone being chased by an alien is a guy just screaming shit 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 while he's being chased by an alien. So uh, we we can cut it, but um, uh, Vol- Volcano Kid pays off. This is a from very very early in the movie when Chris Pratt's character is teaching science class. There's a kid who has an obsession with volcanoes and everybody rolls their eyes at him and it abruptly happens and never happens. They're never brought up again. Then two and a half freaking hours later in the movie, toward the very, very end, um, they realize, my God, we need a volcano expert. Snap cut to the kid, uh, giving volcano lessons instead of, you know, them going to a scientist or the internet. Uh, it's incredibly ridiculous. It's Roland Emmerich screenwriting 101. And I laughed so hard at it, uh, but I, I genuinely didn't love it. And finally, um, uh, Chris Pratt and J.K. Simmons hunt aliens in the snowmobiles. This is the Fast and Furious sequence where Chris Pratt ramps a snowmobile into an alien uh, to save his dad, played by J.K. Simmons. Uh, I watched this at home on a screener with some friends uh, for interviews, and like eight of us were all watching it, and we all stood up and cheered and screamed at the TV when the snowmobile hit the alien. One of my favorite like at home moments of 2021 watching movies with friends because you know theaters weren't an option at the time. I would feel very bad cutting it, but I also understand that I think I'm the only one here who likes this really silly 90s-ass movie. I feel like if Chris Pratt were not in this movie and it was all about Sam Richardson's character, this would be, like, the best movie ever made. But I, <laughs> I cannot I cannot sanction your buffoonery here because I'm, I'm sorry this movie yeah. just did not do it. Uh, ben, did you see this? I didn't, no. I feel like if, if Ben had seen this, he would be at my side for the snowmobile scene. But since he hasn't, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and cut all three of these scenes. So, goodbye <laughs> I've tomorrow. I've seen war. it, but I'm fine with cutting this from the list because I think it's a perfectly fine, silly movie, but nothing that I think deserves to be on our top 50 list. <sighs> okay, fine. Volcano Kid, you, you were very useful. <laughs> you were very useful randomly. All right, Brad, kill, uh, kill one, keep one. Uh, so I'm actually going to kill two because I don't think either of these moments are going to end up on the list, and I'm the one who added both of them. Uh, and honestly, they're both kind of similar uh, in why they're great and why I love them, even though one's a little bit more uh, touching than the other. Uh, and that's two scenes from Coming to America, uh, the sequel to Coming to America. And uh, that's King Joffrey's living funeral uh, where they're celebrating his life and like he's, he's in this stand-up casket and everything, uh, and they're celebrating him with uh, Morgan Freeman coming in to regale the sto- story of his uh, great um, ruling. And then there's this whole musical element where they bring in En Vogue and Gladys Knight. Uh, and it's this just great celebratory moment. But then it also takes a somewhat sad turn because it turns into his actual funeral because James Earl Jones as King Joffrey actually does die in his stand-up casket. He bids farewell to his son, Akeem Eddie Murphy, uh, and it turns into an actual funeral. Um, and then in a similar fashion, uh, there's a big wedding when Akeem's uh, son, Lavelle, 
gets married to the uh, the woman that he actually loves as opposed to an arranged marriage. And it's a big celebration where pretty much uh, all of the characters that Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall have played in both the original movie and this one from the barbers to the lead singer of sexual chocolate to Arsenio Hall's uh, creepy old man preacher. They're all in attendance. And it's this, just this, like, kind of this fun comedic hangout party that they have at this wedding uh, that also is gets very uh, musical and uh, has tons of cameos and whatnot. And so they're both really fun sequences. And I think they're, um, they're like the most enjoyable out of the, uh, the entire movie, but I just, I don't think they're going to make the cut. Nice. Yeah, I forgot this movie actually existed until this moment, so I don't... <laughs> oh, sad. <laughs> Sorry, Brad. <laughs> All right, well, cut, cut them both, but what do you want to keep? Um, What do I want to keep? Um, So, this one I feel like is going to be maybe a contentious one, but I but just be, I think this was a, a real wow factor and just a super fun thing for people to experience um, in, in theaters or even at home since it, came, it has already been out on home video. Uh, and it's this really fun, uh, albeit very fan servicey moment in free guy. Um, the movie with Ryan Reynolds uh, taking place in a, in a video game world. And it's a scene from the very end where uh, the video game creator Taika Waititi has unleashed this super buff, enhanced version of guy named dude it's ryan reynolds face horribly uh and terrifyingly put onto this monstrous buff muscle guy with no shirt uh and dude is um really beating guy to a pulp and it seems like all is lost but then guy it manages to um get access to his uh weapons uh roster and he blocks a punch uh, by dude with captain america's shield uh, complete with the theme song and then all of a sudden he has the fist of the Hulk and punches him uh, he reaches behind his back and pulls out Luke Skywalker's lightsaber he uses the uh, what I've come to learn is the llama pickaxe from Fortnite the gravity gun from Half-Life and the portal gun from Portal and it's just a really fun stream of uh, wild weaponry that he uses with tons of pop culture references including a very quick cut to Chris Evans uh, watching this video game live stream in a diner when Captain America's shield shows up and he goes, oh, come on, what the... <laughs> and so it's just a really fun sequence. I'm throwing it out there just because it, uh, I know that it was a big moment and a lot of people really enjoyed it. And I, and I really did too, as as silly and uh, fan service as it is. I think that it's it's a lot of fun. I don't love this scene. I, <laughs> this scene kind of made I me roll my eyes too. Yeah. See, I, 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 I knew I it, I knew it. I don't want to be rude, but this scene made me want to die. <laughs> <laughs> specifically specifically the cutaway to chris evans where he goes what the shit and it's like that's just so lazy that's like those remember those those like not another whatever movies not the not the original ones but where it's like you know meet the spartans and every single one of those movies has a joke where it's like no it's winehouse what are you doing it's not it's not that bad no it's not that bad it's not anywhere near as bad as anything in the friedberg and seltzer movies listener it is that bad no Like, again, I don't want to be rude, but this I did not like this movie at all. And I know I'm in the minority because it was a huge hit. And people people were like, I had fun with this, but I really did not care for this film. I think this scene actually, for me, took it from took Free Guy from being a mostly harmless, kind of fun, uh, nice core movie to being a cynical corporate synergy movie. It's, it's, yeah, and it's I like really, insidious. really dislike that about it. Because like 90% of that stuff is owned by Disney and it's like them being like, look at we we own. And it's like, ah, uh, I don't know. It does not sit well with me. Sorry, Brad. We can put it in, in discussion for now. It sounds like yeah. this one's gonna be a conversation. Um 
Oh, there's going to be a conversation about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Ben, kill one, keep one. Um, I think we can kill a couple from F9. I'm trying to decide. I mean, I, I enjoyed F9. It did not end up on my favorite movies of the year list. Uh, I feel like I'm the biggest Fast and Furious fan here. Uh, I think John Cena's infinite zipline can definitely go because <laughs> it's amazing. Funny, <laughs> as I, have, I haven't seen the movie, but this is the only thing I'm interested in now. So please <laughs> so, don't go. So <laughs> if it was actually an infinite zipline, I would love that. And I would like argue forcefully <laughs> for it like to it be on the list. Though. because it was like half the city. <laughs> Yeah, so John Cena's character is basically like ziplining over a city in Scotland, I think. I don't remember exactly where they are. But it, it's, you know, characters are running around or, or driving around on the ground and they just keep looking up and seeing him like zoom over uh, <laughs> on, on a line. But So but many problems. He's ziplining for so long. Well, that's the thing is like you you don't actually see this, but it's it's strongly implied and and like even with the way that these movies don't uh, grasp onto any real notion of reality, this movie even makes it clear that like it's not just he's standing on one roof and fires a zipline across the entire city and rides that all the way down. Although I wouldn't be surprised if this franchise tried something like that. It's like he fires it a little ways and then a little ways further and a little ways further. And that just to me is like, that sort of is not in keeping with the spirit of these movies. So uh, as amusing as the visual is of like people keeping on looking up and seeing him uh, zooming by overhead, I just think the, uh, the logistics of it actually like call the, the uh, integrity of this selection into question question for me a little bit so that's fair um, we'll, 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 we'll cut it but i only because you unpack the logic of it I not also, because yes. i also just think it's very funny that he's just zooming by on the zip line with a stone face the yeah, entire yeah. time that is true it's uh, it's like, this is the first thing that's made me want to watch this movie so i'm just gonna put this out there um so I, I don't know guys like i can't decide the car goes to space like um i actually kind of liked that moment in this movie i know a lot of people are sort of like oh yeah, you know, this is something that people have been predicting for years and whatever. And like, they kind of roll their eyes when when it actually happened in this movie. And I, I kind of think like, even logic wise, like it sort of made sense. Uh, I wish it would have gone a little bit further in terms of like what they actually had to do when they were up there, when some of the characters were up there. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of teetering on thinking that we should cut that in favor of keeping the Tokyo Drift crew is back because seeing that entire sort of subset of the cast interact again after uh, it's been many, many years since Tokyo Drift came out and a lot of those characters uh, have not been back at all. Um, so seeing all of them come back and the fact that they're like basically like uh, just working as like um, like rocket engineers basically and they, they strap a rocket to the top of a car at one point. Uh, I really like seeing those guys come back and I think we can also roll Han's appearance back in with the Tokyo Drift crew because he was like essentially the main character basically of uh, or at least the standout character of Tokyo Drift and Han's return to the Fast and Furious franchise was like a huge moment uh, in, in movie going this year. I think there was a, there was a lot of conversation about that. And I think it was executed pretty well. Um, and it was just great to see Sung Kang back in action. So um, I think, I, I think we cut the cargoes of space as much as I sort of like enjoyed that moment on a conceptual level and keep Tokyo Drift Cruise back. What do you guys think? I agree. I, I think it's totally in the spirit of Fast and Furious to focus on the family and not on the big spectacle. 
Well, put, I'm fine with well that, put. but RIP John Cena's infinite zipline. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to look and see if that's like on YouTube or something. I just want to see the, the infinite zipline. Yeah, so I, I, I instinctively just put Tokyo Drift Cruise back, locked in. I, I feel like it has to be there, unless anybody like strongly disagrees. No, I'm fine with that. Han's back, baby. Yeah. It was better. Does that count as both your choices? Both your, your cutting and your keeping? Um. Yeah, unless you want me to cut something else, which I can do. But I'm going to cut, cut, cut one more thing. We, we need to keep this list going. So. All right. So let's cut. Um. There's only going to be one. I'm uh, sorry. I'm watching the zipline scene right now. I'm <laughs> losing my mind. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, I'll, I'll cut one that um that I put on here sort of at the last minute, and that is uh Coleman Domingo being scary in Zola. Um, Zola is a movie that that I think got like a little bit of buzz early in the year and and people sort of gave up on the movie and I think the best thing about it is Coleman Domingo's character who is like I know him as like the the super friendly like uh, amiable dad from If Beale Street Could Talk primarily and seeing him as this sort of like a ruthless um, essentially pimp character in Zola is like a total 180 and I just really appreciated the range that he showed in that movie but I don't think the uh that performance is enough necessarily to vault him into the top 50 movie moments of, of 2021 fair he's a great actor he's so good but yes <laughs> okay um i want to do some quick cleanup on my eliminations there are two malignant scenes left here and we have the best malignant scene on the list and we have the truth by gabriel which is the the, the, the footage like the vhs footage of, of first seeing what he is we need which to is... cut out the cancer she's <laughs> really really good but i think we can cut it and also, the, one of the most memed moments of the year, but I'm not so sure if it makes your list, is parking way too close to the cliff edge. <laughs> where, the, where the character just parks way too close to a sheer drop, and the movie just treats it like it's a normal thing to do. And it's so funny, while being so straight-faced, that I love it, but I'm not so sure it makes the list. Yeah, it's amusing, but I, we have so much other stuff to do, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think I, we have the most representative malignant scene on our list, so I think we can cut these two. Right. I also have a cleanup suggestion if you want to hear it. Yeah, what do you think? Uh, I think um, we have Tokyo Fight and Mechagodzilla from Godzilla vs. Kong, but those are really like the same scene, I feel like, to me. like they could they, That could be one scene if you want to really clean things up. I think it means I guess I think it means that the initial Tokyo fight between Godzilla and King Kong, and then the later Mechagodzilla. Oh, scene. I was thinking about the ending. All right, yeah. well then I rec- I recant everything I just said. <laughs> um, but so I, so I cut among the scenes. Um, I'm going to keep this train rolling. I want to bring up all the Fear Street scenes. I have, I have all three Fear Street movies just under the banner of Fear Street here. There's one here of these three that I think belongs in the top 50, 100. I will fight for it. There's one here that I personally love, but I'm happy for it to be in discussion for now, and one we can cut. So I'll start with the cut. And that is uh, the final confrontation in Fear Street 3, where all the monsters against all the surviving characters in the mall. It reminded me a lot of Cabin in the Woods. Not quite as good, but it, ha- it gave me those vibes. And I really, really liked it. But I also feel like of the three here, it's the one I'm most willing to cut. Unless anybody here feels differently. I, I think I know which one you're going to keep, so I'm waiting. Yeah. Agree. Um, in Fear Street 3, of course, if you don't know, Fear Street is three movies. Fear Street 1994, Fear Street... Um, Part two, 1978, and Fear Street Part three, 1966, sorry, 1666, all set across different decades, in centuries. And the moment that made me want to stand up and cheer is in Fear Street 3, 1666. Halfway through the movie, the plot of, of 1666 re- resolves. And then it cuts back to 1994 storyline. And the, and the title, Fear Street um, 1994 Part 2, slams up on the screen. And I love how it 
they end up being four movies. They, they literally had the title for Fear Street 1994 Part 2 in the middle of Fear Street Part 3, 1960, uh, eight, sorry, 1666. And it was such a fun way to play with the trilogy structure that they, they slipped the fourth sequel in the middle of the third movie. Uh, Jacob, I got to tell you, I really love this moment. <laughs> I really love it. I did like I did a full on fist pump. I was like, fuck, yes, this rules. I was so excited when that happened. Uh, Wait, is this the one you want to keep? The one I want to keep is a bread slicer kill. Okay. Like, if, I, if we can get the part two in there as well, I'd be happy. But the bread slicer kill, where a character, a genuinely likable character, the first Phil Street movie kills off so much of the cast, including the characters, the lovable comic relief characters and friends who would survive a, a less harsh slasher movie. When a character we genuinely like gets forced into an industrial bread slicer at the grocery store, and what appears to be a practical effect is she sliced down the skull <laughs> is the gnarliest horror kill in literally years, maybe a decade. It is yeah. wild. And if it's up to me, this Brett Tyser kill and the back 1994 would make the top 50. I don't know if we can get two Fear Streets on there. I'm going to cut the final confrontation in the mall, which I really like a lot. I'm curious what everybody else has to say about which of these two scenes belongs in top 50, if both do, et cetera. I, if we have to pick only one, I would go with the bread slicer just because uh, not only is it like gnarly and nasty, but it arrived at this weird moment for me. Like as I was watching the movie, the first one, I was like, you know, this is pretty good, but it's not as, uh, you know, gory as it could be. And then literally someone's head gets like sliced into a bunch of pieces. And I was like, I was not expecting that. So uh, and like you said, th- the character who dies is really likable. Like I was I was I enjoyed this character and. I enjoyed her in such a way that I was like, well, there's no way they're going to kill her off, at least not in the first movie. And then her head get, gets cut into pieces. So uh, if we're only voting for one scene, that one has my vote. Did it, uh, Brad or HG, did you guys watch the Fear Street movies? I did. Oh. I, I like them all. Uh, I think I agree with Chris. The bread slice, slice kill uh, is probably the one that should make it if it's only going to be one. I have not seen them, so I will... Uh, let you guys decide on this, and I don't. I think I'm fine with having a Fear Street scene on the on the list because I think that they were pretty widely acclaimed this year. So it was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. I, I cheated and put the entire trilogy as the number ten on my top oh, ten of the year. So, uh, how we put Brett Spicer Kill locked in? We put Back to Night ninety four in in discussion. We can visit revisit it if we have some room for it later on. Sure. Yeah, I think that's good. All right. Well, that's it for me. Back to you, HT. Back to me. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yes, I'm always prepared. <laughs> you know, um, I'm going to – oh, man. I have a couple that I want to add. I don't know what I want to look, a cut. Let's see. You know what we haven't talked about yet? Dune. Yeah. <laughs> and we have a couple moments from Dune, and I don't know which one I want to cut because I love oh, all of them. How about, we, how about we, we address them all? There's five moments from Dune. We can do some real clearance here. All right. Let's do this. All right. Uh, first one from Dune is every time they said desert power. And yes, I did <laughs> add this. <laughs> all right. I kind of just want to lock that right now. Just because. <laughs> uh, so I think we should, honestly. I, I kind of added it as a gag, but then I thought. I kind of want this on the list too. The gag ones are the best ones. Are. They should, yeah, the whole list should be gag titles, I think. <laughs> All right. Second one is the sandworm attack. I'm guessing it's the first one. Um, yeah, I put was- this one on there, and this is the moment for me that I realized this was a good movie when I saw it for the first time. And the way that it's shot, and like it's shot in this, it just, there's such scope in that scene. You really feel how gigantic. And scary the sandworms are. So yeah. that, that was my pick. Yeah, the enormity of the sandworms is just 
so majestic in this scene. It's incredible. Uh, next one is a meeting with Stilgar. I put uh, this one here. I can cut it. I, okay. I think Javier Bardem is a hoot. I love space diplomacy. I love people in rooms talking about space stuff. And this was an incredible space diplomacy scene where people stare each other down and talk space stuff. But uh, we, we and they spit. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we can cut it though. All right, next one is Jason Momoa's bear hugs, which I also added. Um, another kind of couple moments scenes, but I just, I loved not only the uh, hilarity of seeing Jason Momoa just lift Timothy Chalamet up every time he hugged him, but also the fact that every time Jason Moa's uh, Duncan Idaho showed up. Everyone was just so happy to see him. And they just, ri- and uh, <laughs> Paul would just run up and get a bear hug from him. And you really feel not only in like how great it was to see Jason Momoa, but you feel the affection and love that House Trades, um like warriors and, and feel for the, the actual house and for their masters. And I think that's essential in making us like this, this royal house and the family as we do because because of the love and the sheer loyalty and affection that they, that everyone, that Jason Momoa and everyone shows for them. So I think the bear hugs do, uh, are doubly effective in that way. And that is just Jason, Jason Momoa bear hugging Timothy Chalamet, but also showing exactly why we should care about and why we do care about these characters. So that's, uh, and then the last one is House Atreides Falls. Oh, and I do love this scene. This is the the action sequence in which House Trades is under attack by House Harkonnen and the um, uh, Empire's forces that I'm forgetting, the Sardaukar forces. Uh, and it's such a a bleak scene because you already know that they're doomed to fail and that they're uh, at they're all you're already seeing their loss play out in front of them. And yet uh, they without their swords, Josh Rowland goes charging in and uh, God, it's so the bagpipes cool. pipes kick in. The bagpipes kick in. It's <sighs> under cover of darkness, but you still see the action and see all the yeah. everything it's, happen. So it's clearly. so scary. It's it staged like a like like the enemy ships are so huge. They're so mm-hmm. outnumbered. The attack goes off so the enemy attack goes off without a hitch. And we watch mm-hmm. our heroes. We've spent the last hour learning the love. Get their asses handed them, man. It's tragic. And this is my choice for the scene that makes the list personally. But oh, all these scenes are great. We should just include all of them because I love Dune. <laughs> Um, what should we do a vote for which ones we have? I would say as much as I love every scene where Jason Momoa shows up and everyone's like, hey, Jason Momoa is here. That's the one that could probably be cut. <sighs> yeah, that's, that's that's a weak link here. The other three I have, a, the other three have such strong cinematic moments or have such cultural moments in terms of desert power being the quote of the year mm-hmm. that the bear hugs while very fun, I don't think. All right, we can cut the bear hugs. I'm 100% willing to, to cut my Dune, uh, the sandworm attack, if if Desert Power makes the list, right. because God, I want that on. I, I, can we have I, two moments? Uh, can we have Desert Power and House Atreides Falls? Because I, I really, really love I that. would happily lock both those in right now if, if everybody's okay with it. I think so. I liked Dune enough that that makes sense to me. But uh, what do you think, Brad? He's on mute. Brad, are you muted? He is on mute. He hated <laughs> Dune so much that he refused. <laughs> Sorry, I was. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm not as all in on the desert power meme and amusing nature of it as everybody else is. Uh, but I, I, I'm totally all about uh, House of Trades falling. Should we put House of Trades for lock and then Desert Power in, in discussion? I think that's a really good way to approach this. I think we should just put them both on lock. And I on. honestly agree. <laughs> <laughs> but let's do that for the sake of of uh, of. Um, the principles. Yeah. 
That works for me. I, I, I have a feeling we'll be we'll, uh, Desert Power has a real strong chance of making like the last couple of slots when those open up. Yeah, Desert Power. <laughs> All right, uh, uh, let's move on then. Uh, Chris, yeah. kill something? Or actually, did you did you kill and in? I guess no. that can count as my killing and keeping, right? Yeah, got a bunch of stuff. All right, works for me. Uh, Chris, kill and keep. Okay, so I would say uh, kill-wise, uh, there are two scenes for nobody on the list, and I feel like it, only one is going to make it, if that, and the one that should make it. And this is not my pick, but I feel like the one that should make it is the bus fight. So I would say cut Christopher Lloyd with a shotgun. As much as I love Christopher Lloyd, uh, the bus fight is the, the superior yeah. moment. I put the Christopher Lloyd moment there because it's very, very amusing when Christopher, when 80-something-year-old Christopher Lloyd pulls out a shotgun and shotguns the guys to death, but um, it's it's gone. I will fight for the bus scene at some point, but... um. That one's gone. Okay. And then for my pick, uh, since there's only one item from Pig on the list and I put it here, I would say Pig, please, because Pig is great. And specifically, it's a scene, um, you know, for those who don't know, there's um, the movie is about Nicolas Cage. He, he used to be a uh, like a celebrity chef and now he lives off the grid in the woods and he has a truffle hunting pig and, and two drug addicts steal his pig. And so he heads into uh, back into society in, in the form of Seattle to look for the pig. And there's a scene where he goes to this fancy restaurant and um, the, the chef there recognizes him and, and he, he makes Nicolas Cage a meal. And Nicolas Cage basically politely but uh, nastily shoots down the meal and says, like, you know, you could be doing better than this. What do you, you know, you should be making stuff you love, not this crap. And the chef just looks very crestfallen that Nicolas Cage would say this to him and uh, I love this movie. Nick Cage is so good in this movie. I- I've said this before on a different podcast, but this is like a movie that reminds you that Nicolas Cage is more than, you know, a series of memes. He's actually a really great actor when the right material finds him. And he's so subtle and understated in this movie compared to how we're used to him. And this scene in particular, just the way he, he politely shits all over this meal is just uh, very... Uh, it's just amazing to watch. And yeah, and it's and I'll add it's not necessarily just shitting on the meal in like a, a respectfully nasty way. It's also a way of him like pointing out to the chef. It's like like, like Chris said, like you're better than this. It's like why aren't you doing what you love? Like I, yeah. I remember what you originally wanted to do when you were working for me before I fired you. It's like why aren't you doing that? Why are you doing this? Why do you care what all these people think? And it's like it's definitely the cornerstone of the entire movie and like his character and why he is the way he is. Aside from the fact that he's also reclusive because his his wife died but but right. th- but this is just it's it's such a pivotal moment and yeah it, it, it's a great scene yeah like the movie when you read that synopsis it sounds like everyone thought it was like oh this is gonna be john wick with a pig but it's really just about this guy trying to hold on to the the very few things in life that are actually special to him and it's it's just this very beautiful heartbreaking movie and uh, i just i love this movie to death and yeah so yeah yeah pig belongs in the list and this is the scene I agree. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, so, Brad, yeah. Kill and keep. Okay. Kill, kill, kill. Um, I I think it's safe to say that we can maybe cut both scenes from Mortal Kombat from this list. Oh, yes, oh okay. Okay. 
I was going <laughs> to have to talk about the metal arms. I, 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 I was going to actually make a half-hearted defense of the magic metal robot arms as being the single stupidest moment in 2021 cinema. <laughs> I'll let you take the lead here, but I'm sorry. It's, it's your turn. Yeah, I mean, so Mortal Kombat, not a great movie. Uh, it does have a couple of good moments, and we, I think we've picked the ones that are here. The opening sequence is impressive by digging into the mythology of Mortal Kombat and having some uh, incredibly choreographed fight sequences. Um but it's, you know, for me, it just wasn't something that, like, it's mind-blowing enough to end up on this list. And then the Magic Robot Arms, man, just... <laughs> Jacob, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you explain it, because I think you're going to do a much better job than I will. <laughs> All right. Jax, soldier extraordinaire, gets his arms ripped off early in the movie. So when he ends up at the Mortal Kombat training camp, along with other heroes, he's given these very, these hilariously tiny <laughs> twig-like robot arms. Uh, like, the, like, like he's like this big buff guy walking with these tiny little like snowman stick arms, like trying to do things and he can't, and he's very sad about it. And at Mortal Kombat training camp, uh, su- summer camp for killers, uh, they, they learn that, um, that everybody can unlock these magic powers. And you get a yes. magic power, you can uh, get a special ability. So everybody's like, I can do this. I can throw flames. I can shoot a laser eye. And then when Jax gets his special power, his twig-like robot arms turn into giant robot arms. <laughs> he gets he gets slightly bigger arms. That's his power. <laughs> it's the dumbest thing I saw in a movie last year, and I can't stop thinking about it. Chris and I have joked about this a lot. Um, it's just it's so stupid. It's, so st- it's stupid enough to like I, I. There's a part of me that wants to fight for it to be on the list because it, it's is more memorable than most of the good stuff I saw last year. It, it is a mind-bogglingly bad decision in a movie built entirely out of bad decisions. Like the fact that there's no Mortal Kombat in the Mortal Kombat movie, uh, but this moment it's emblematic of how broken that screenplay is. But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna actually dig in my heels. But I genuinely think the Magic Robot Arms is one of the key key moments of 2021 cinema. <laughs> You should just write an entirely separate article just about that. Like, this is the best movie moment of 2021, and it's all about the robot arms. All right. Does anybody else even... 10,000 remo- words. Does anybody else remotely agree with that this could possibly belong on the list? If, if nobody else thinks so, I will gracefully cut it. I just want to make sure no one else thinks like I'm on some kind of weird track here. <laughs> Get rid of it, Jake. <laughs> okay. It's gone. It's gone. Brad, what are you keeping? Um, I would like to, and maybe we can work through all three of the scenes here and do this. Um, I would like to add uh, Tick, Tick, Boom's Y uh, sequence to the list. Um, I think this is probably the best musical moment uh, in the entire movie. For those of you that don't know, this is a film directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. It is a musical adaptation, but it is not the kind of fast-talking, rapping music uh, you'd expect from Lin-Manuel Miranda, because it's based on a musical by Jonathan Larson, the creator of Rent. And it tells uh, his own story about how he was trying to get this musical called Superbia off the ground for nearly a decade uh, and how he just kept struggling to get it done and getting people to support him and just wouldn't quit. Uh, and in this uh, this musical about this his story and like trying to get this sorted out, um, in the middle of uh, this amphitheater in New York, he sings this song called Why, uh, just Andrew Garfield by himself at a piano at night, uh, going through his entire childhood and teenage years um pinpointing the the times and like moments that are give him the reason as to why he does what he does why he is so passionate about music why he wants to write uh and create musicals and it is uh passionate powerful andrew garfield sings his heart out um the emotion on his face is is palpable and it's just an incredible 
uh, moment, and it's capped off by the just a gorgeous shot of like all of a sudden a downpour of rain uh, after the song is over, and uh, I really think it's the pinnacle of the the entire movie. Um, I also love the other two musical sequences, uh, Sunday, which is a little bit more of a fun one that takes place at the classic Moondance Diner in New York, features. A bunch of uh, cameos from uh, Broadway stars that only the most hardcore theater nerds will, will know. Um, and it's just about like basically spending a, a Sunday working away at, at the diner. And then uh, 3090, which is the opening sequence, which is very upbeat and lively and really like it, it really did for me. Well, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to love this movie just because of the sequence alone. And uh, it's just um, an incredible song about him, uh, you know, his birthday coming up and just, you know, reconciling that and, and that kind of thing and uh just a very lively musical number but for me i think why will be the one that makes it ben i want to hear from you because i know this is on your top 10 list as well it was and i added 3090 because of what you said it sort of like kicks the movie off and sets the tone and and really starts the the ticking clock aspect that is sort of woven throughout this whole movie but um you spoke so well about about why and how powerful that moment is that i'm i'm willing to cut 3090 and sunday i you know as somebody who like didn't grow up with like a huge affinity for musical theater that the Sunday thing watching and seeing the camera like lovingly uh, linger on a couple of those people's faces I was like oh this must be what, what it's like for um, you know average audiences to like go see a comic book movie and have no idea what the hell the Easter eggs are kind of thing <laughs> um, so uh, I, I think that moment can go as like special as it it probably is to a, a small um, subset of the the viewership um, so yeah I think I think you should put Y on there I'm, I'd back you for that How's everybody else feeling? I'm yeah, go for it. Yeah. I'm good for why. I love I didn't, boom. I didn't absolutely love the movie, but the fact that Andrew Garfield like learned to sing for this movie is it like blows my mind because he's such a good singer, and it's like he literally had to learn just for this movie, and uh, that's that's no that's no easy feat. So I, I have no objection to. Yeah, that. it's just as cool as when Ewan McGregor finding out he had perfect pitch when he made Moulin Rouge, and it's like fuck you, man. <laughs> How dare you be good looking and talented? All right. Uh, we've added uh, a Tactic Boom's Y sequence to top 50. Uh, ben, you're up next. Okay. Um, let's get rid of some Bond stuff. I really, really, really liked No Time to Die. Um, I don't think there's any way that three moments from this movie are going to make it. So the three. Well, which of the two good ones are going to make it? <laughs> I think only one is probably going to make it. And I think the two that are going to get cut are uh, Ana de Armas. Like, she. <sighs> Pops up in this movie Ooh. and is really great, but she's only in the movie for, I mean, 10 minutes or something. It's a list of moments, um, Ben, and she gives maybe the movie's best moments. If anything, I mean, that moment is infuriating because she's gone too soon and you're like, oh, I don't want to watch the rest of this. Yeah, I was actually kind of like, um, I don't know, like I... I her appearance didn't land on me in the way that I wanted it to because I felt like I didn't get... Uh, enough time with her that I did kind of feel like like cheated out of like learning about this character or like getting to spend real quality time with this character. I was kind of yeah more like miffed at at this moment. So I don't know. Maybe that's just my bizarre reaction to it. But I'm um, I'm okay cutting it. I, I, there are things on this. There's another no time to die moment that probably belongs in the list. But I want to say that I think Anadarmus leaves you wanting more. She comes in and it's so funny and it's there, there's a long history of like you know one shot James Bond sidekicks. It pop up for 15 minutes in a movie assistant for a sequence and then, then vanish and she is top tier top five maybe top three temporary james bond sidekicks uh, but yeah. i'm okay cutting her i'll agree with that and then the, the countryside car chase and shootout i assume this is the the one um 
What, which one is it? Who put this on the list? I put it on here. It's the one from late in the movie where uh, Bond the and, and, and the, 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 the Land Rovers and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, Interesting. I I like this scene a lot because I don't think the action in this movie is especially always good. I don't think it's ever as good as the action in Casino Royale or Skyfall, for instance. But uh, Kerry Fukunaga shoots this scene like a horror movie. Uh, it, it's full of mist and fog. Yeah. And it's, it's dark and there's trees and there's shadows. And it's Bond being hunted and then doing the hunting. And uh, also it ends with a moment that is a very deliberate reference to a scene in the James Bond movie, Free Eyes Only, where Roger Moore kicks, off, kicks, kicks a car and <laughs> kills a guy with it. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I, I think we can, we can cut this one because the one above it is the one that belongs to the list. Yeah, and that's, uh, and again, spoilers for all of these movies, uh, but James Bond dies at the end of No Time to Die. Uh, and it was, um, you know, I, I think it's a moment that probably shocked a lot of people. It's never happened in the whatever 50 plus year uh, existence of this franchise. Um, I thought it was a really, really cool way to end the Daniel Craig uh, era of Bond films. I think, I, I wish that the, um, the emotional through line of the movie was a little bit more potent all the way throughout because I found myself as much as I enjoyed the movie wishing that, uh, the, the relationship that bond has the romantic relationship, at the center of the film was like, was hitting me a little bit more, but it really, really did work in a great way. Like a, a manipulative, emotional, like, uh, a manipulative in the best kind of way. Um, a type of, uh, a type of, of fashion at the very, very end of the film when he, uh, essentially sacrifices himself and and um, and saves the world in in uh, and leaves his wife and daughter behind because he knows that there's only one thing he has to do and he's James goddamn Bond. So um, yeah, I, I I love this moment. I think uh, it's notable in a, in one of the most notable movie franchises uh, in existence, and I think uh, for that alone, it should probably make this list. Yeah, it shouldn't work as well as it does, but Daniel Craig sells this moment and the fact that. It works, even though Madeline Swan is one of the worst James Bond characters of all time, and you never ever understand why they, why her and Bond are apparently like the perfect match for each other. And yeah. it, it's such a bad relationship. But this, the filmmaking of the scene and what Craig brings to it, the entire movie, James Bond is so tired throughout this whole movie. He's beat up. He's weary. Everything's an effort, and seeing him make the final choice to just sitting there watch, it takes it a very tired Bond. A very tired Bond watching a literal fuselage of missiles slamming down on him. It's it's what a way to go. What a way to send out James Bond. Just yeah. It's it. I, I in a movie. I, I have very mixed feelings on. I, I I like it, but I as a long time James Bond fan, I am. There are aspects of it that make me crazy. Uh, I think this works so well, and I think this is not. This is going to be like ranked pretty high on my personal list too. Nice. I want to hear uh, HD Brad Chris. Any thoughts on this one? Oh yeah, uh, no, I'm totally cool. I think I think that's definitely the moment that needs to be in there. Yeah, yeah. I did. Sorry, go. Sorry, no, you go ahead. Oh, I I did not love this movie or really even like it, but I appreciate what a what a gutsy move this is, and I, I also appreciate that it's not done like they, they he could have shot this in a very ambiguous way, where mm-hmm. it's like maybe he survived, but it's like it's very obvious that bombs fall on James Bond's head and he's yeah. <laughs> he explodes 25 goddamn <laughs> missiles yeah. on him. No, uh, I, I appreciate that like a, a huge blockbuster a huge IP franchise is, w- would take like that's a risky thing to do it would be like making a new Batman movie and killing Batman and so it's like as much as I don't like the movie I really appreciate that they really went for that so I you know I I, I, I would definitely vote for this yeah put it on the list. All right, locked in. All right, my turn to kill and keep. 
I'm going to go on a killing spree. Actually, I'm going to I'm going to suggest a few in rapid fire succession. Um, most of which I added. Uh, I want to remove the one Black Widow thing I put here, which is Florence Pugh. I think she is really, really funny, like genuinely hilarious and charismatic, and so fun to watch in Black Widow. But that movie's a dud. That movie is such a dud, and she can't save it. So I, I, I want to cut that. Yeah, just want to say Florence Pugh is the greatest. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, her whole thing about her, Black Widow's superhero landing is is adorable. Uh, I want to cut the one scene from Eternals I put on here. Uh, every scene with Arishem, the giant space god, because he looks fucking cool. Um, that's really all it is to it. I, I, we, can, we can cut that too. Um, <laughs> also, you know, while I'm here, while, while I'm on this Marvel murder spree, um, <laughs> I have three scenes from, or I, I, I put two scenes, I think someone added one, from Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Uh, riding a dragon in the climax, I thought it was super neat. Probably one of the cooler things I've seen in a Marvel movie last year. Won't make the final list. I'm cutting it. Um, and the bus fight, um, it's fine, but I feel like there's a better bus fight on this list in, in the form of the one from nobody, which we'll get to. I mean, point. to a certain extent, like the part of me wishes we could just combine them and be like bus fights. Um, because, <laughs> because I actually, I, I have a newfound respect for the Shang-Chi bus fight scene after I watched the assemble documentary about how they made it, because it's not just a bus on a rig with a blue screen. They actually did a lot of really impressive practical stuff with a real bus on streets, crashing into cars and everything. And just like from the acrobatics that uh, Simu Liu pulls off on the bus uh, to the choreography inside and how it uses the, you know, the environment of the bus itself to pull off so many cool moves um it's in some ways i think it's a little more impressive than the nobody bus fight i like the nobody bus fight just because of how brutal and raw it is and so i don't know i'm i'm not like super passionate to fight for it but i feel like it's it's better than just like oh it's a cool bus fight or how we put that one in discussion then sure all right um okay i'm gonna leave uh tony lung on here um for now that's one song she's one I, I don't have I, I'm going to not call it a cut um okay um I guess I'll let you guys pick should I go after Spider-Man or French Dispatch for my, for my keep I feel like Spider-Man's gonna inspire a lot of conversation <laughs> okay, I'll do French Dispatch for now since we're ending in close to part one of this we'll say Spider-Man for part two stick around for part two folks um I have three oh I put two scenes from French Dispatch here so I'm gonna add the third one uh, so the French Dispatch, Owen Wilson on his bike. The French Dispatch. I put, I put that. Oh, you did. There, okay, because it's like my favorite part of the whole movie. <laughs> uh, Bill Murray offers Jeffrey Wright a job, and uh, Benicio del Toro steps in for Tony Rivellori. Um, I'll start with the bottom and let Chris do the bike one in a second. The Benicio del Toro scene is a scene where his character, who is a uh, psychopath and an artist, has been arrested and put in prison for murder, and there's this haunting moment. It's, it's Wes Anderson really, you know, whimsical style, but used a truly haunting effect where played by uh, Tony uh, Rivellori, you know, who you may remember from um, Grand Poopa's Hotel and the new Spider-Man movies, a young version of him is sitting there in his cell and the camera is just looking at him in this sort of medium close-up. And then he, and symbolized years passing, this young, fresh-faced actor stands up and in, into the shot steps Benicio Del Toro is the older version of him, craggly face, you know, late 50s, beard, eyes that I've seen a lot. And he just takes a seat and they swap places. And suddenly we flash forward in decades. And it is one of the best uses I've seen of Wes Anderson uh, doing something, doing a whimsical style choice that lands like a thousand punches in the stomach. The idea of the mortality of this, of years flashing in a second, of the young actor becoming Bruce Del Toro, really connected with me. Um it sounds like Chris may put up a, 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 a fight for the bus for the uh, bike scene, so I'm, not, I'm prepared to cut this one possibly. Um, no, I'm, I wouldn't put up a fight. I just think my favorite moment in the whole movie is that 
entire uh, Owen Wilson thing. Can you just, you go talk with him? I like the scene too, but I'll let you spearhead this one. Uh, it's just Owen Wilson biking around, pointing stuff out, and the, the camera never sits still. It's just following him all over town, and uh, it's just so you know it is. I know whimsical is a word we've already said about this movie, but it is a whimsical scene, and uh, I just I I I loved it, but I'm not gonna. I wouldn't like fight for it. It's actually hard for me to pick out a favorite moment from the French Dispatch just because I like all of the vignettes for very different reasons and I like them equally. (laughs) But I will say, Jacob, what you said about the Benicio del Toro steps in for Tony Revolori scene, I didn't actually think about that when I watched that scene. I kind of saw it as a more comedic moment like, oh, he was so young and suddenly he's Benicio del Toro. But I like the added weight that you – that you gave it, um, that your reading gave it, because um, I didn't think about that at all. All right. But the one I really want to talk about, and this is my number one moment of the year. This will, this will be my number one on my personal list, um, is Bill Murray offers Jeffrey Wright a job. Uh, the third segment of uh, Francis Patch is my favorite of the bunch. It's the one where Jeffrey Wright, the, f- the food writer, uh, describes going to a, a, a dinner at the at the uh, police chief's house and getting involved into a kidnapping plot and this massive crime and a gun battle and a car chase. And it's so funny. And I think Jeffrey Wright gets my favorite performance of the year of last year. Jeffrey Wright is incredible in this movie. He's so funny, so droll, so tragic. And there's a flashback within the flashback where he reflects being arrested for going to a gay bar uh, in this Parisian town. And Bill Murray's editor character shows up and bails him out and offers him a job. And there's this moment of connection between the two of them where uh, it's clear that Bill Murray sees something in him and this desperate writer so d- desperate <laughs> wants to work for this guy. Uh, they share this moment, this very low-key connection where uh, where it, it's about what writers and editors owe to each other, like in this little microcosm. And as somebody who, over my years doing this, I've been, since 2009, I've been in this goddamn industry. I've been in both, I've been in both seats here. I've been in the jail cell hoping an editor will, will hire me, and I've been the editor you know, trying to decide if this person is what I need in a, in, in, in a writer. And I found their connection here to be incredibly moving. And I found this scene to be incredibly moving and such a perfect depiction of, you know, I'm not, I don't write for the New Yorker, I don't write for New York Times. I'm not, you know, I write for Slashville.com, which is a very, very different thing. But the, the basic principles are still the same, which is sometimes you take a chance on people and sometimes you leap with those chances and it leads to amazing stories where you're on, we are writing about food, but also gun battles and kidnappings. And I found this to be very, very moving. And maybe just for me, maybe a scene just for me and the other editors out there. But it, I, I want to see on the list. It sounds like your passion play, Jacob. I feel it, like it has to go your, on there. Your moment. You have to put it yeah. on the list. And also, I agree. Jeffrey Wright gave one of my favorite performances last year. Just in that very cardboard cutout, um, sort of almost stifling with Wes Anderson world. He gave a performance that managed to uh, convey a warmth, uh, a humanity, an empathy, a gravity that I think a lot of the other even incredibly talented actors didn't do in that film. So, yeah, I am all abo- all aboard this scene. <laughs> All right, I'm going to put the other two into in discussion since they clearly have fans, and I would also like to at least re- revisit them in the future. Okay, everyone, this is Ben from the future. I'm interrupting our conversation here to announce this is the end of part one. Come back tomorrow. We're going to have part two. I don't know if we're going to end up splitting this into three parts. Uh, the plan is just to do two parts. We'll see how, how well the conversation flows tomorrow. 
But thank you all so much for listening. You can find more about the movies that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com. This podcast is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you guys tomorrow for part two.